Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with strength coach at Louisiana State University, Boo Schneider. Tune in to episode 212 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome an absolute legend in Boo Sheck Snyder. But first, I must say a big thanks to uh, James Baker over at uh, Aspiring Qatar for making an introduction to Boo. So I wouldn't have had him on if it wasn't for that introduction. So really appreciate James um, making that intro for me. But absolute legend, like I say. And if you are wanting a deep dive on plyometrics, this is definitely the episode for you. So we discuss progressions, we discuss how Boo buckets types of plyometrics and how he focuses on each one of them buckets for different populations, for different aims um, in a periodized plan. So tons and tons of information around plyos and obviously speed work in which Boo is an absolute, um, like I said, an absolute legend. So great episode coming up i'm sure you'll enjoy it and i would love all your feedback ultimately the most important um coaching skill is communication and the ability to reach the the young people you're trying to reach and i think having an education background uh, is a bit of an advantage in that regard this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system so the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform, which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Boo Schneider. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely honoured to welcome uh, Boo Schneider to the Pacey Performance Podcast this evening. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Uh, thank you. Very, very um, uh, appreciative of the opportunity, Rob. Uh, thank you very much for giving up some of your day to, uh, to have a little chat. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, you just want to give us a bit of a... Just a general overview of what you've done in the past, kind of education-wise, and what you're currently doing uh, at the minute in both jobs. 
Sure. Well, uh, I'm not too good at talking about myself, but I, I began my career as a, a high school uh, football, American football and uh, track coach. And I eventually gravitated into collegiate track and field. Uh, I was fairly successful there and I had some success at the international level as well. Uh, I also uh, began doing um, speed and performance types of training with athletes. And uh, upon my uh, first retirement in uh, 07, I began uh, Chef Snyder Athletic Consulting and I was in, in that capacity, I was doing a ton of coaching education stuff. And I was uh, also um, serving as a, um, a consultant, uh, offering expertise to school programs, professional athletes, collegiate programs and such, uh, helping them to devise uh, better speed and power uh, training uh, regimens. Um, and I continue to do that now. I very recently returned to LSU. Uh, my current capacity is that I'm the uh, strength coach for the track and field program there now. So education-wise, I'm fairly modest. Uh, beyond my high school degree, I have a degree in uh, education. Uh, physical education is what it was called in the ancient times uh, <laughs> uh, from Nichols State University. And I got my master's from Nichols as well in administration and supervision uh, back in those days, I guess I thought I was eventually going to become a school principal or something like that, but that never quite worked out. But I'm kind of happy that did, that it did. So the the physical education um, degree was 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 that uh, teaching? Was that was that based around, like you say, the the future progression on to be a teacher? Yeah, well, I, I I was a classroom teacher for a long time, and in fact, I I, I, I think that that might be um, I'm typically regarded as a pretty good a clinic speaker and a teacher of coaching education programs. And I think that might be why is that I was an educator by profession. I was actually a mathematics teacher at the same time I was beginning my uh, coaching career. And I enjoyed being in the classroom. And uh, uh, so I, my, my degree basically was an education degree. I had a math teaching minor, uh, but I also took all of the anatomies and physiologies and all of those things that are typically associated with uh, more advanced kinesiology degrees. Nice. It's, it's, I was going to say it's surprising, but I guess it's not so surprising that so many guys that I've had in the podcast before are physical education teachers, whether it be the couple of technical coaches that I've had on to give their perspective on uh, athletic development, but strength coaches as well. Kelvin Giles comes to mind, um, mm -hmm. who was a, an excellent guest, who was obviously a physical education teacher. So I guess that sets up um, coaches really nice. Like you say, being in front of a group and actually speaking is what yeah. comes naturally to teachers. Yeah, well, you know, um, we, we enjoy talking on the, about the technical side of coaching and the workout planning and the administration and all of those techniques and things. But ultimately, the most important um, coaching skill is communication and the ability to reach the, the young people you're trying to reach. And I think having an education background uh, is a bit of an advantage in that regard. Is that something that you can teach, though? Or is that something that comes naturally? I, I think both. I, I think that most teachers have an aptitude and personalities that enable them to gravitate uh, towards success in those areas. But I do think it can be developed. Uh, and I think probably the single most important thing is uh, confidence. You know, for, for any of you listeners who are a little on the shy side, I was quite the wallflower for quite a time. And then suddenly I found out that I was pretty good at something and being good at something breeds certain levels of confidence in saying things. And once you become confident in what you say, then you become comfortable in front of people and such. So um, my advice to any young uh, coach or teacher who feels a little bit of stage fright from time to time is to really learn your stuff and know your stuff. And uh, the confidence that you get from that will definitely uh, uh, improve your ability to communicate with the athletes you, you meet with on a day-to-day -day basis. Superb. So just to move on, on to the um, a couple of things that I want to chat to you about, and one thing that forms is going to hopefully form a, a big part of this conversation is plyometrics. Would, just to set the scene, would you be able to just give a bit of an overview on your philosophy when it comes to plyometrics? Then we can kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic. Sure. Uh, generally speaking, I think that plyometrics are pretty much an essential part of just about every training program. I think that they are very important as far as skill teaching as well as the power and elastic strength development that they produce. 
Uh, I think that they are a huge of a huge importance in supplementing the acquisition of speed and strength. Uh, I think that plyometric training should be a very high quality, not a quantity-based, but a quality-based approach. I think there are certain types of plyometrics that serve very definite roles in the program. So I think that you have to be organized in that regard. And I guess finally, I think that plyometrics should be very purposeful, meaning that rather than just doing things to do them, I think that it's very important that you have a very distinct targeted purpose each time you put an athlete through some type of plyometric uh, workout. Uh, I think that every uh, different type of plyometric has a unique purpose. And I think the key to success there, uh, besides applying some common sense, is the ability to use each type of plyometric as it is intended to be used in the role it's intended for. When you when you say um, skill teaching, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that we, we always think of plyometrics as something that makes you explosive and improves your elasticity and so forth. But I do think that plyometrics are tremendous motor educators and that they teach you how to apply forces to the ground in certain very precise and very particular uh, planes and, 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 and um, of movement. So I think that uh, if the plyometric program is appropriately diverse and you hit uh, correct ratios of horizontal to vertical types of work, I think that you see not only strength and speed and power levels increase, but I think that you also see general movement quality increase. I think you see uh, sprint mechanics improve. I think you see change of direction qualities improve dramatically if you hit the right bases in your plyometric program. So you, you mentioned that you, you believe that, that, that each plyometric exercise has a purpose. How do you bucket the exercises together to form, like a, form I guess, a, a menu for you to choose from? So depending on what purpose you have is a, a bunch of exercises that you could kind of pick from. Is that how you work? That's exactly how I work. I, uh, I'll venture from it occasionally, but for the most part, uh, almost all of my plyometric series and, and our circuits, exercise groupings, are all pre-assembled and I select from those different groupings depending upon the purpose of the training session and the time of the uh, the time of the year. Uh, I have I, and I basically I typically break plyometrics down into three main categories. I guess you would say your in-place jumps uh, are typically done in circuit form and I have three or four different circuits that I use depending upon the level of the athlete and the stage of training. And I think that in-place jumps are by far the best way to establish your plyometric volumes. You know, if you're going to have an athlete who's going to uh, do significant amounts of plyometric work, um, uh, I'm not a big volume person, but there are some volumes, some basic uh, work capacities that are specific that need to be developed in that regard. And in-place jumps are the best way to do that. You know, if you take a look at in-place jumps, a, a good circuit might have 10 or 12 different exercises in it. Well, if you have 10 or 12 different exercises, then uh, each of those exercises is stressing the hip, the ankle, the knee in a different way. All those exercises are stressing ligaments and tendons and cartilages and soft tissues in different ways. So you have tremendous diversity there in the way the tissues are being hit. And since the number one cause of injury typically is repetitive movement, because of the fact that you're picking all of these different exercises, uh, you have zero chance of repetitive movement injuries when you use in-place jumps to build your volumes. That's why I think that they are very uniquely suited for that uh, purpose. Um, the second type of basic classification of plyometric I, I, I use are what I call short bounds. Short bounds are, have a technical demand. Uh, they can be horizontal or vertical. And their primary purpose is in addition to the, um, to the power and elasticity that they develop. Uh, these are your skill producers. These are the, uh, the jumps that actually teach athletes how to apply forces to the ground correctly. They teach the correct timing uh, of the um, ground contact uh, forces and swinging forces that are involved in, the, uh, in jumping activities. And therefore, they have the most carryover, in my opinion, to the uh, to, to skill, uh, uh, more transfer to sports skills probably than any of the others, all of the others that we see. The third category is extended bounding. Extended bounding is, uh, they're very similar to short bounds, but they're done over greater distances, you know, 30, 40 meters or so. And these are about power sustenance. Um, you know, for many, many years, uh, extended bounding has always been associated with 
the triple jump in athletics. Um, but I, I don't think that's a very good comparison, to be very frank with you. Um, you know, I always think that when you take your triple jumper and you're bounding them like 50 meters, that's kind of like running your 100-meter sprint or 800. It just isn't that specific. I think where these exercises really shine, though, is in sports and activities where you have uh, a, a high power output, but you also have a pseudo-endurance output. Uh, uh, demand as well. So I think that they fit really well into the middle distances in track and field, sports like basketball, where, you know, you have these two-minute spurts of play and such. So I think they're very applicable in those situations. And then the final category would be your depth jumps. And uh, your depth jumps, the purpose there is very simple. It's uh, high-end training, very high-intensity training for the athletes that are prepared for it, to train uh, power and elasticity at the very highest levels. So in short, that's my taxonomy. I'll sometimes subcategorize a little bit within those, but for the most part, that's kind of how I see the plyometric world and all of the plyometric options you have out there available to you. Superb. On on the short bounds in that in that category, you mentioned that you can go vertical and horizontal. Is there purposes for each one of those? I know you mentioned you can subcategorize. So would that be a subcategory of that of that? Um... That group? Absolutely. Um, yes, they are. Uh, and, and I try very hard to maintain certain ratios of vertical to horizontal work. And I typically I find that athletes gravitate toward more effective movement patterns if you work vertical to horizontal at a ratio of about two to one. Um, and I can't really explain why that is. Uh, I think it has a lot to do maybe with just human anatomy and we're kind of... Um, we're horizontally oriented creatures, I guess is what you, you say. You know, if you look at an animal who runs around on all fours and you look at the human hip, there there's still some vestiges there of similarity in the anatomy. Um, so maybe it has something to do with the point we are right now in our evolution, but as a species. But that being said, uh, I, I think that it's much more difficult. Uh, anecdotally, I found that it's much more uh, difficult and takes more effort to develop the vertical qualities as opposed to the horizontal qualities. Now, why you need both is obviously because just about any time you push off of the ground in a jump or a run or, or throwing or changing direction, there's a horizontal component and a vertical component. And the ability to manage forces in both planes, I think, is very uh, important. For example, if you're you know, accelerating, there's a very large horizontal component as you push against the ground. So in order to enhance that, um, that the acceleration mechanics, uh, horizontal multi-jump type of activities are, are advised. On the other hand, if you look at maximal velocity sprinting, the forces are far more uh, vertically oriented. So vertical um, abilities, the ability to produce force effectively in a vertical plane is critical to uh, proper execution at maximal velocity. Well, so that being said, those are just two examples of, of those skills. And when you start looking at team sports and the changes of directions and all of the different unpatterned acyclic type of movements you see in team sports, then it becomes obvious that um, you have to be versed in both and be able to combine them at, at will, so to speak. So in, in team sports, so say basketball, for example, when you're not you're not going to hit max velocity too many times during a game, would that mean that your practice is more horizontal orientated in terms of plyometrics? Possibly, but not necessarily so. Like I said, the okay. our natural disposition seems to be just for general movement quality that we need more vertical work than horizontal. Uh, you know, there are there are times when I may even go beyond the one to two horizontal to vertical ratio and maybe go one to three or even one to four for certain sports and activities. But I typically don't drop below that one to two uh, marker. So I, I feel very strongly about that because I, I feel that vertical plyometric activities are really helpful when it comes to change of direction. I know they don't really look like it, but uh, I, I think that the, um, the, the, the muscle groups that are responsible and effective in change of direction are, um, are, are similar to those that we see used in, in uh, single leg vertical jumping. And I also feel that um, if you take a look at like change of direction in team sports, um, I always see change of direction as a yielding type of activity. And just in my work, whenever I go to programs and uh, I see poor change of direction qualities, I typically see poorly organized uh, 
plyometric programs. And if you think about it for a second, you know, the, um, uh, I mean, if you're doing like a box drop jump or a rebound jump off of a box, well, you're changing direction from down to up. Well, at the tissue level, there's really no difference in changing direction from down to up or left to right. It's all about eccentrics. It's all about yielding there. So I think that being effective in the plyometric realm is important in order to be able to change direction effectively. And the uh, vertical uh, plyometrics seem to be the environment where we can teach yielding best. Uh-huh. So, so another subcategory that I'm just going to mention is is single leg plyometrics. Where does where does that fit in? Do, or does that fit in? It does fit in, but it, I find single leg options in all of the different uh, um, all of the different categories I mentioned. I use some some simple single leg working in place jump circuits, uh, the short bounds. Uh, the majority of those I use are single leg, the extended bounding, and even with super high level athletes, uh, single leg depth jumps might even be something I might tackle. Although I've only had maybe three athletes in my whole career that I felt were um, you know, qualified and prepared to do that type of work. So yeah, single leg work is a big part of what I do, of course. And I do differentiate between single and double leg, but that's kind of in the context of those other uh, taxonomy uh, categories. So in terms of, you mentioned that the depth jumps, single leg depth jump, those that may fit into that category have been very, very few. In the double leg depth jump category, is that still, do you think people move into that category too early? Is there still quite a, a low number of people that actually deserve to be in that in that category? Well, it's no question that it does require a preparation, and I'm not talking about weeks. I'm talking about months and possibly years uh, in order to do genuine depth jumps. And I, and I want to differentiate. You know, some people, some coaches will pull out boxes and have athletes bounce on and off of boxes, and but that doesn't necessarily make it a depth jump. You know, what I when I think of depth jumps, I'm thinking of boxes that are very high, high enough to put an athlete into an environment, a motor environment, uh, an impact environment that they couldn't achieve otherwise. So for example, let's assume that you have a young lady and um, forgive my use of the imperial system, but let's assume that her vertical jump is maybe, uh, let's say 24 inches. Okay. Well, if you put her on a 12 inch box or if you put her on a, uh, or if you put her on a uh, 18 inch box, it's really not that big a deal because she could create those intensities without the presence of the box. But if you put her on, say, a 30-inch box and ask her to fall off and rebound, well, then suddenly you've increased the impact levels to something she could not create ordinarily. So to me, that's the difference between box jumps and dev jumps. And before I get an athlete to genuine dev jumps, they need to be adequately prepared. Uh, They need to be uh, um, uh, invest months and, like I said, possibly even years before I'll do genuine depth jump types of work with them. And then when I do, it's very um, short and sweet. You know, uh, it's quality based, very low volumes, and it's just like a, a quick hit type of thing. Superb. Just moving kind of up the chain, looking at looking at it from a bit a bit of a more high level. Where does where does plyos fit into the weekly structure in terms of, say, take a team sport, for example, who may have um, one game per week? Where does where do these fit in? And it'd be great to get your, your, your ideas on where the different categories fit in as well. Well, when I... A personal philosophy of mine is that you handle things very differently in season versus out of season. Uh, so, for example, a team sport person who's preparing for the season... Uh, I like to include some type of plyometric component every time they do a speed power based type of workouts. And most of your good uh, preparatory programs, preseason preparatory programs are going to do speed power work uh, two to three times a week. So I'm looking at plyometrics two to three times per week. Uh, during the early stages, the preparatory stages, the initial stages of an off-season program, I think there are three boxes that you need to check. You need to establish your volumes, and that's what your in-place jumps do. And then you have your short bounds in a horizontal and a vertical sense, and you those are two other boxes that you need to check. And then you move into an emphasis on not that you ever get away from the simple things, but you move into an emphasis on more advanced forms of plyometrics like the extended bounds or possibly the depth jumps or whatever is appropriate for that athlete. Now, once you move into season, however, in my opinion, all rules are off. 
not not trying to brag, but you give me an athlete, I can write the entire preseason training program for that athlete, and I'll be on the money. You know, every every workout will be perfectly appropriate for that athlete's level. But I do think that once the competitive season begins, um, nobody's that smart anymore uh, because once athletes start traveling and they have these uh, weird aches that come from competitions and games and things like this, you never know quite what you're going to get. The competition season produces a very unpredictable environment. And I think that a good strength coach uh, becomes more uh, reactive at that particular time of year. So if I have an athlete who's competing, I kind of look at what's going on in the sport. I would like to uh, have them perform high intensity plyometrics in season every 10 to 14 days. Uh, if I'm going to do plyometrics, I want to get my money's worth out of it. You know, there's no sense of doing low end stuff if you've already prepared them to do the high end stuff. But at the same time, realistically, I know that uh, sometimes the demands of competitions, particularly athletes who are playing uh, or competing uh, multiple times in a week, that just might not be a, a realistic. And of course, the sport itself has something to do with it. You know, if you're a basketball player or a volleyball player and all you ever do is jump, well, how many plyometrics do you really need in season? So I, I do think that once you get into the season, um, there's a lot of variables that come into play. And I'm really hesitant to give a hard, fast answer um, that would apply uh, um, well to lots of different sports and lots of different uh, ages. So in them in them sports where you've got a lot of jumping within the sport itself, how are you? How would you advise people to manage that in terms of introducing plyometrics? Well, ideally, you have a time outside of the competition season where you're able to teach the fundamentals. You teach the technical side of the plyometrics, and you can establish some lingo and some terminology there as well. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of strength coaches don't have that opportunity. For example, here in America, basketball players play 13 months out of the year. I mean, they never, ever stop playing, you know. So it's, it's, it's very likely um, that you're not going to have that opportunity. So if that is the case, then you have to do the best you can on the teaching side of thing. But you also have to kind of understand that that's also an advantage. You know, I was speaking with the basketball uh, strength and conditioning coach here who's a client not that long ago. Um, few years and he was kind of lamenting the fact that he never had an opportunity to develop a base with his athletes because they were always playing. And the point I made was very simple. If they're always playing, well, there's your base. You know, there's no need to do in-place jumps and these more remedial form of plyometrics because these athletes are doing this stuff all the time. And uh, what he does now and what works very well for him is he'll take them and address very high-end plyometrics, real intense ones, about every 14 days or so. And that's worked phenomenally well uh, for him. I think the mistake that we sometimes make is uh, we want to do things more frequently and we do things that are not intense in season and therefore they become baggage. They're not intense enough to really help, keeping in mind that the competitions themselves are pretty intense. So if you're going to help, those intensities need to be comparable. Uh, so they're not very intense. They're not intense enough to help. And if they're not intense enough to help, then simply they're more pounding. They're more baggage uh, uh, at that time of the year. And that's a bad time to do that. So it's going to take a very quick break in the chat with Boo. Hope you're enjoying part one. So in part two, we discuss um, more on plyometrics and then we transition over into more uh, speed work. We discuss overspeed training and a bunch of other topics which I am sure you'll love from Boo. So just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device. But not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. 
So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter, at Fatigue Science. So it's part two with Boo, I hope you enjoy. So in terms of the, the quantification of the, the volume of, of plyometrics, Boo, how, how, are you, how are you ensuring that that is happening? And how, yeah. When how, I have, how, are you, how are you quantifying it? When I have a controlled training environment, uh, uh, I have boundaries that I work within for every single type of work that I do. Uh, for example, if I'm doing a certain type of short bound, I know I'm always working between 70 and 120 contacts. You know, if I'm working with extended bounds, I'm always working typically between 250 and 450 meters total volume in an extended bound session. And uh, in my personal inventory, I subcategorize. So I kind of know what needs to be done in each particular type of plyometric. Now, I came up with those things many, many, many years ago. When I, when I first got interested in plyometrics, and this was like 30 years ago, what I did was I counted all the contacts of everything I did. And I also assigned uh, intensity factors. And once I started taking the number of contacts I did and multiplied it by the intensity factor that I associated with that plyometric exercise, I found that at some times of the year, I was really a little too hot. And at some times of the year, I was a little too cold. And uh, I noticed that the injuries always came during the hot times of the year. So that was a very good exercise for me. I, I can't guarantee you that it's 100% accurate, but it helped me to devise these boundaries that I've set for myself, so to speak, and the, the, the parameters that I use for each type of plyometric that I do. Nowadays, we're pretty much established based upon that experimentation that I did years and years ago. Sorry to repeat myself on this, but does that differ for... Uh, track athletes to um, track and field athletes to, to team sport athletes? No, I do not think so, but I do think it differs depending on body types. Uh, one of the fundamental things that I think of in terms of training, uh, if you're a speed power athlete, I'm going to train you for speed power, period. And there are things that I want to do with you. Uh, and I think that the most important thing is an athlete's body type. I do think that sometimes we try to specialize by sport or specialize by position. I don't necessarily think that that's maybe the best thing to do. For example, I used to work with American football a lot. You know, if if I have a, a person who plays on the defensive line and the person is five foot ten, we say three hundred pounds, so a big, big, strong, stocky kind of person. Well, that person is not going to be able to do the type of plyometric works that a tall, skinny person would be able to do you know so in short uh, I'm always trying to devise things based upon a person's body type and trying to train them in ways uh, the reason why big people typically lift more weights and do less running in plyometrics is because that's where their body can excel and the reason why skinny people typically sprint more and do plyometrics more and lift a little less is that's because that's what their body can accept so I, I think more in terms of body types uh, when I'm administering plyometrics, then their sport or their position or any of those other factors. Superb. So just to move on into another direction and just chat about uh, max velocity training, um, I, had a little, I had a little run through your Twitter account and I, and I remember seeing something a while back that you'd, you'd thrown out there and it was, um, it was about coaching the arms in, in max velocity sprinting and that led me on to... <laughs> That led me onto a uh, down a little rabbit hole of of thinking about just to get your just to get your opinion on where you think people are spending a lot of time where you don't think they should be. So it was just to kind of put that out there, and that that coaching the arms one was obviously one of them. But it'd be good to elaborate on that. And then if there's anything else out there that you think that are kind of fads or get a lot of attention when they don't really deserve it. Well, feel free to steer me if I miss something, but we'll talk about arms first. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that um, if you really study motor learning and understand how the body organizes movement, uh, it's all about force application to the ground. In short, you know, that's what sprinting basically is. You're teaching people how to push against the ground correctly and you're training them to improve their ability to push against the ground. And what the upper body basically does, the upper body counters and balances the movements of the lower body. So the upper body basic movements basically organize themselves in a way that enable the body to maintain balance and symmetry as we sprint. 
So in short, uh, arm movements are valuable to look at because they give you lots of clues as to what's going on from the waist down. But I don't think necessarily that arm movements are really worth your time coaching. I, I do strongly feel that if you take a person from scratch and you teach them how to sprint correctly and uh, they are applying forces, the correct magnitudes and the correct planes throughout the entire sprint, the arms will organize themselves and they'll be perfectly fine. Uh, if you ever come to my training sessions and you see me coaching arms, you're probably can assume that I'm actually re-coaching arms, maybe because of some bad coaching or bad habits or something like that this athlete's developed over the course of, of the years. So I do think that arm movements evolve. And I think generally speaking in coaching that we do not uh, trust the body's movement organization processes enough. You know, you know, running is right, left, right, left. I've never heard a coach had to teach that. The body knows how to do that. And there are other things that the body knows how to do as well. You know, a lot of our sprint movements are organized subcortically. You know, they come from the spinal cord, not from the brain. Uh, so, you know, um, I, I farmed poultry for a while. When you cut the chicken's head off, it continues to run around the yard. Uh, so obviously, you know, you don't have to think of everything. And I do think that we overcomplicate this. And I think that in sprint coaching culture, because of the fact that the arms are very visible and uh, I think that they're favorites to coach. Uh, if you examine our movements in sprinting, we see that they change. You know, if you know when you're accelerating, the pushes are big, you see long arms. When you're sprinting at max velocity, you see pushes are quick, you see short arms. Uh, when you're accelerating, the pushes are directed backward. You see the arm move back at max velocity. The pushes are downward. You see the hand directed more downward. So even if you do pick a particular arm style, you're only going to be right on one step in that acceleration uh, 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 continuum there. You know, the arm movements evolve as the leg movements evolve. And I think that we need to be a little more sophisticated as a, as a sprint coaching culture about understanding uh, the way that we actually sprint, you know. I had a, um, I won't mention names, but I had a coach call me the other day. So his young lady is running almost a second slower in the uh, 200 meters uh, last year and sends me the video. Well, you know, did you change this person's arms? Yes, I did. She was had too much side to side movement. So I made sure her arms went perfectly front and back, you know, working in the sagittal plane only. Well, we need to be more sophisticated. There are rotational components in sprinting. And when the hand moves back, the hand should widen a little bit if the hips are oscillating and turning the way that they should. So in short, a lot of the arm coaching in the past has really been based upon faulty uh, concepts of sprinting uh, with, a, with a failure to appreciate the rotational components, with a failure to appreciate the directions of force application. And um, so in short, I really do think that they organize themselves. And I do think that if you're going to teach them, maybe from time to time, you might have to say something. I'm never going to say never. But if you do, I think we have to have a firm understanding at a fairly sophisticated level of exactly what those arms are balancing or what those arms are countering. So another thing on the uh, on the list that I, that I flagged up was core training. And as strength and power coach at LSU, how much core training do you do for you get your guys? What type of training? Core training. Oh, power training? Core, C-O-R-E, core oh, training. Oh, core training, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, your, that's your accent. Yeah, your accent got me there for a second. Okay. Sorry, it's the not yeah, it's the, it's the <laughs> dirty north northern English accent. Sorry, <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I, I came up as a French speaker, so uh, I, I I'm kind of guilty of accents myself, and I'm turning it off now as best I can. But anyhow, um, core training when I. I, I, there's nothing wrong with core training. It's it's the, the level of sophistication and a genuine understanding of what the core does. I think that's important. You know, uh, a lot of times when we think of core training, we think of doing crunches and sit ups and those simple little exercises. Well, when you're sprinting at max velocity, the demands on the core are so much greater than what you experience in a sit up or a crunch or one of those simple exercises that, you know, that's not really core training. I'm not saying they're bad exercises. And if you're doing those as part of a circuit, they're, they're fine. But the, the demands on the core uh, are so much greater than what we see in those exercises. It's not even applicable. 
If we examine what the core does in sprinting, we see that the shoulders and hips operate in, in uh, opposition. You know, on each stride, the hips turn and then return back to their original position. You know, we see oscillations of the hip girdle mm -hmm. and we see some oscillations in the shoulder girdle as well that are amplified by the arms. So what we see is kind of, if you look at the core, you kind of see a winding and an unwinding action in the core. So that means if we're going to train the core very specifically for sprinting, our training needs to be uh, rotational in nature because that's what the core effectively effectively does. So when I look at specific core training for sprinting or sports movement in general, it's almost always the medicine ball. It's almost always uh, catch-toss stuff with the medicine ball, uh, working in different planes, uh, diagonal planes, rotational movements, and things of that nature. Uh, the fact that the medicine ball, uh, when you catch it, uh, forces you to stabilize and act elastically in the core uh, is very helpful because it's a very specific type of movement. Uh, the anti-reverse, you know, it, it's not so much about, I should say, it's not so much about rotational strength. It's more about anti-rotational strength. And that's really what you're trying to develop in your specific core training. So in short, if you're going to train the core, that's fine. But just make sure you're training the core in the way that it actually operates. Um, again, a little higher um, degree of sophistication, I think, ought to be applied in those type of uh, situations, you know. Another thing that I think you had asked about initially was maybe like knee lift and things like that. You know, knee lift is undoubtedly necessary in sprinting. You know, if uh, when you lift the knee, what you're doing is you're placing a pre-stretch on the hip flexors. On the, I'm sorry, on the uh, hip extensors, and that enables a more forceful push against the ground. But we got to remember the other, other side of it as well. Once you push against the ground completely, you're putting a pre-stretch on the hip flexors, and that helps to pop the knee up. So the entire model of sprinting that I'm always thinking of at high velocities is that the, the, the thigh, the femur, is acting as a pendulum with an elastic uh, operation at either end, you know, with the stretch reflexing reflex that's fueling uh, that change of direction uh, of the femur as it moves from up to down or down to up. Uh, so knee lift is fine, but in some sprint coaching cultures, I think it's gotten to the point where we're overdoing knee lift so much that we forget about the other side of it. You know, uh, when are you pushing against the ground? It's not when you pick your knee up. It's about it's when you put your knee down and we're forgetting about the pushing side of things. That's why I always caution coaches who start doing wicket drills and things like that indiscriminately. Uh, sure, if you're an over pusher in sprinting, wicket drills might be a good thing for you. But I've seen hundreds and hundreds of sprinters who totally lose their ability to push against the ground effectively because they're so preoccupied with picking up the feet. Uh, to put them over the next wicket and you lose the sensation of pushing against the ground. That's so critical in sprinting. You know? So, so I, I think that, uh, you know, if you're going to do wicket drills and things like that, you know, you better know what you're doing, in, in my opinion. Uh, not condemning it, but if you're going to do it, you better know what you're doing with them for that reason. You know, sprinting is all about pushing down and I don't want to base my basic uh, sprint training or sprint teaching model upon picking the feet up and force application to the ground is the single most important uh, thing involved there. You know, uh, I think one of the most common things that we misunderstand in sprinting is where frequency development comes from. You know, um, overspeed training works, we know that, but I think the reason why it works has been kind of maybe misidentified. I, I, I think that what really gets lost in the whole idea of frequency development and sprinting, you, you don't increase your frequency development by simply trying to move your feet faster or move your legs faster. Frequency increases occur long term because of increases in elastic loading. So, for example, if you drive your knee up, uh, you're putting those stretches on those hip extensors. If you drive your knee up harder, then that stretch becomes bigger and the elastic loading becomes greater. The same thing happens when you push down against the ground. When you push against the ground, the hip flexors are loaded elastically. If you push harder, the stretch reflexes are greater. The, the elastic loading is greater. So what really produces these uh, frequency increases is not just trying to turn over. What really increases them is bigger force applications. You push harder, you get higher frequencies because the elastic loading at the ends of that range of motion are effectively increased in at, at the top end and at the bottom end. Superb. Thank, thank you very much. Um, 
one last thing that I want to chat to you about and just just run run past you and probably a nice little little way to finish um, is recovery side of things mm-hmm. and the circuits that you use for recovery. Can you just mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about that and why you structure it the way you structure it? I, uh, for restoration purposes with almost all speed power athletes, I use circuit training, basically body weight circuits, uh, med ball circuits, and also some weight training circuits. Um, I feel very strongly, and the research is finally starting to point in that direction, that mild to moderate levels of lactate uh, produce growth hormone responses that are very positive and assist in restoration. So I like to do circuits that are fairly well taxing, fairly taxing, that will produce moderate levels of lactate. Uh, these circuits are typically about 12, minute, uh, 12 minutes in length. That's not 12 total minutes of work, but 12 total minutes in time duration. Uh, these circuits uh, are scripted, meaning that there are certain uh, lengths of work intervals, normally from the neighborhood of 15 up to 30 seconds in length and certain rest intervals. And I always define the circuit in terms of a work-to-rest ratio. So if the work-to-rest ratio, say, is one-to-one, then if they're working for 20 seconds, they'll rest for 20 seconds. But anyway, I put these circuits together in ways where I'm trying to hit a perfect balance between really fatiguing these athletes, but also allowing them to be powerful throughout the entire circuit. I know that sounds like a little bit of a contradiction, but if you plan a circuit perfectly, the athletes are going to be tired at the end of the circuit, but they will still be able to execute every um, every set of work in the circuit maximally with high intensity. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I typically limit circuits in length to 12 minutes. Uh, what I've always found is that if you go longer than 12 minutes with a circuit, what will typically happen, and this is true for any level of athlete, what will typically happen is if you go longer than 12 minutes, you'll notice that power output starts to drop off late in the circuit, or they'll figure you out real quick and they'll kind of pace themselves, so to speak, which is not what you want either. So the circuits involve high intensity work, general strength, like body weight type of exercises. Other circuits involve medicine ball types of exercises, catch toss type of work or, or different type of calisthenics using the medicine ball kind of as a, um, as a basic, um, uh, a, a light load, I guess you would say. Uh, I like the circuits much more so than running. Uh, some coaches like to use tempo running and such for restoration and feel that they can achieve the lactate levels the same way. It's unquestionable that you can achieve the lactate levels the same way with tempo training. But I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about repetitive movement. The um, the uh, the number one precursor to non-contact injuries in sport is repetitive movement. And uh, if you do running workouts for your restoration, that's just right, left, right, left. And that's a lot of repetitive tissue assault. On the other hand, if I put together a circuit that has 12 different exercises and then I come back with the next circuit that has 12 different exercises still, that's a lot of different movement patterns. And because of that, we improve our coordination abilities and the number of uh, repetitive movements is drops dramatically. So circuit training is by far, in my opinion, the best way to achieve restoration, to achieve fitness, at the same time minimizing injury risk. And to be very frank with you, you know, as I do this longer and longer, I've learned that the line between fitness training and restoration training is really very blurred. That things that are modest, that are uh, moderate. Uh, level fitness types of workouts almost always have very good restorative uh, value in them. And again, I'm sure that's because of those uh, those endocrine uh, changes that result from them. Um, finally, I also do some circuits in the weight room as well. Uh, these are big, uh, very good at moving the needle on endocrine responses as well. So typically my circuits, I'll pick uh, uh, um, about 12 different exercises or so. Uh, I'll do each one, say, twice, meaning that uh, I'll have 24 total sets of work. I'm doing like sets of 10 with recoveries of about 60 to 90 seconds. And the, the, the loads in the weight room are um, sufficient where I get just a little bit of slowdown, just a little bit of fatigue on the 10th rep. And these seem to be really good for restoration as well. Um, I call them bodybuilding, which is a term that Dan Paff uh, created many years ago for that particular type of work. Uh, it, it don't confuse it at all with the 
uh, you know, they get greased up in poles of competitive bodybuilding, but they kind of build the body back up from the rigors of exercise is the, the purpose of the term there. And I have athletes that have, you know, I've trained for seven or eight years. And whenever they start to feel like garbage, they always come and ask me to do those weight circuits because they know that it makes them feel a lot better. So in short, um, those are the three key components to my restoration program, the, the body weight, general strength types of circuits, the medicine ball types of circuits, and then those weight training circuits. Uh, just to, to clarify things, the weight training circuits are longer than 12 minutes because there isn't really a fitness component associated with them. Superb. Thank you very much. And I think that, that probably finishes us up nicely because um, I'm conscious that you've got things to do at home so just just to round just to round up where can people get to know more about your work boo your website your social media where's the best place for people to go to learn more about the stuff that we've been talking about today probably the best place to go would be my website i'm not much of a technology guy but uh sac speed sac speed.com schecksnyder athletic consulting sac speed.com is my website I have a lot of things there that your your uh, your listeners might uh, be interested in grabbing and and reading, and uh, I have some other resources available there. And you can always contact me directly through the uh, through the uh, website. My email address, my personal email, is on the uh, website there. So I always welcome people to contact me uh, directly. When I was a young coach, I was very fortunate to have people who would answer my questions, and I take that responsibility very seriously. So if I can help any of your listeners. Uh, I'm more than happy to do so. Thank you very much. That's very kind. And thank you very much to you for giving up your time um, mid-afternoon to have a little chat for 45 minutes. I really appreciate that. Always oh, been my pleasure. Thanks, mate. And I'll uh, we'll chat to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to episode 212 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So massive thanks to Boo for giving up his time and his unbelievable insights into plyometrics and speed work. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast would not live this way without sponsor, without these three sponsors uh, in particular so massive thanks to them guys for their consistent support and also big thanks to you guys for listening in every single week and giving me some unbelievable feedback if you are enjoying the podcast please please give a rating and a review if you are an itunes listener spotify listener whatever mode of podcast listening you uh, you choose leave a rating and a review on there it would massively appreciate it So thanks again, and I'll speak to you next week.